1: Let's go places. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. Palmdale, California, just outside Los Angeles. A red sob sonnet is racing down back streets. Inside are a man and a woman. The male driver appears angry and out of it. The woman looks terrified. The driver is going too fast to notice that a stop sign at an upcoming T-intersection is obscured by low-hanging tree branches. The car rockets through the intersection, hits a ditch, and is suddenly airborne, sailing several car lengths before crashing back to Earth. The woman's head smashes into the dashboard. She will have two black eyes for weeks. The man is tossed about like a rag doll; his body bruised. Thankfully, Both are wearing their seatbelts. The shocked couple stagger out of the mangled car and, recognizing that it isn't going anywhere ever again, begin walking to town to find help. The couple is Buzz and Joan Aldrin. And Buzz is drunk.
3: This is Apollo Control at 166 hours 28 minutes. Apollo 11 is 127,431 nautical miles from the Earth. Velocity 4,975 feet per second. Crew still sleeping. All systems still normal.
1: All systems aboard Apollo 11 may be normal. But on Earth, there's a bit of a hiccup. NASA has set up a number of monitoring stations across the planet to ensure that as the Earth rotates, there is at least one station constantly in communication with Apollo. One of NASA's most critical stations is in Guam, and while the astronauts were sleeping, bearings in one of its dishes became stuck, and the antenna was unable to track the spacecraft. There is no way to contact Apollo 11 or for them to reach Earth. The director of the tracking station, Charles Force, had tried everything, but the hole through which he needed to grease the bearing was simply too small. Then it hit him. He raced home and grabbed his 10 year old son, Greg, and sped back to the station. Greg had no problem at all, reaching through a a two-and-a-half-inch aperture and packing grease around the bearing. Soon, the antenna was able to slew into position and once again began tracking its celestial quarry. Years later, Greg met Neil Armstrong, who thanked him for his pint-sized heroics. Uh,
3: Eleven, Houston, Uh, how are things this morning? Over. Okay, uh, everything be all right here? We haven't been looking in the cockpit yet. Uh, We've been spending our time looking outside the
1: cockpit. It's July 23rd, the eighth day of the Apollo 11 mission, and the crew's penultimate day in space. The object outside the cockpit that they've been so captivated by is the Earth, looming larger than ever before.
3: Okay, Buzz. Uh, on your uh, flight plan uh, uh, items, a few updates. First of all, uh, we've uh, canceled uh, mid course number six. Uh, just uh, remain in uh, PTC. Uh, second item. On- this is Apollo control at 173 hours, 18 minutes. Uh, There are virtually no uh, flight plan activities scheduled at this time. Uh, The spacecraft systems will all continue to perform normally.
1: It's going to be another quiet day aboard Apollo 11. We've been jumping back in time a lot during this podcast. But today, we'll be jumping forward into the future. How is the crew of Apollo 11 greeted on their return to Earth? And especially, how are their lives changed by their experience on the moon?
3: How do you propose to restore some... Normalcy to your private lives in the years ahead? I I wish I knew the answer to the latter part of your question. (laughs) Kind of depends
4: on you.
1: (laughs) The months and years immediately following Apollo 11's return was filled with all the pomp and circumstance you might imagine. But it also masked a dark lining to this silver cloud.
3: Apollo 11, Houston, over. Go ahead. I uh, just wanted to make sure you fellas hadn't gone back to sleep again. And I uh, also have a little bit of late news here if uh, you'd like to uh, find out what's happened in the last uh, 12, 14 hours. Over? Okay, go ahead. Okay, doke. Uh, looking overseas, we find South Korea's first super highway. Linking Seoul with support of Incheon has uh, been named the Apollo Highway to commemorate your trip. The uh, West Coast residents all plan to make their areas visible to the three of you by lighting their lights between 9 p.m. and midnight tonight so that you may be able to see Christmas lights, porch lights, door lights, and whatever may be turned on. Uh, Back in Memphis, Tennessee, a young lady uh, who is presently tipping the scales at eight pounds, two ounces uh, was named a module by her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Eddie Lee McGee. It wasn't my idea, said Mrs. McGee, it was my husband. She said she had balked at the name uh, Lunar Module McGee because it didn't sound uh, too good, but apparently they have compromised on just module. Over.
1: Module McGee, a special ed teacher, still lives in Georgia and still loves her unusual name.
3: The all-star game uh, currently being played. The present score at the end of the fourth inning has uh, the National League leading the American League by 9-3. to three. So the hitters are having a good day, as you can tell.
1: The National League would go on to vanquish the American League nine
3: to three. And uh, rain clouds are over the M.S.E. area at the moment. It uh, began uh, raining here just uh, about ten minutes ago, and uh, last report we were having a pretty heavy deluge. So uh, that's it from the news front uh, for the afternoon here. Follow eleven over. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Owen. I think uh, my yard could use some water. Uh, that's uh, very true. I've forgotten exactly how many days it did go, Buzz, but something like 30 days without rain, and uh, we uh, can appreciate uh, the rain we're getting right now. Yeah, that was Neil. Buzz, wonder uh, If you could find out when the last time my lawn was cut. Uh, Roger. Uh, Joan wasn't home right now, Buzz, but uh, Janice reports the grass is getting pretty high, and I would estimate that it's uh, going to be close to your knees by the time you get out of quarantine, over.
1: Neil, Buzz, and Michael returned to Earth very different men than they left just nine days earlier. Not only had they experienced something transcendent and utterly outside the experience of any other human who has ever lived, but they were also greeted as conquering heroes. They were not merely American celebrities. They were global icons. They would forever be changed by their encounter with the moon. Neil Armstrong's biographer, James Hansen.
5: Even before the Apollo 11 spacecraft gets back uh, and splashes down, Jim Lovell, who is CAPCOM, the capsule communicator, uh, told the astronauts as they were coming back in, you know, now the hard part's going to start, which is, you know, coming back to Earth and facing everything that you're going to face as the first men who visited the moon.
1: Following their splashdown, which we will cover on our next episode, the men were immediately placed into three weeks of quarantine, just in case they came back with any dangerous lunar microorganisms. While in quarantine, Buzz began drinking heavily. No one thought much of it. After all, he'd just done something monumentally stressful, and military pilots are known to blow off some steam with a couple drinks. What no one knew, including Buzz, was that this would become the norm for the next decade. Three days after they were released from quarantine, the crew of Apollo 11 hunkered down for a relentless victory.
5: And there was one day, you know, in August when they started in Houston. They go to New York City for a ticker tape parade.
1: In New York, people dumped so much confetti that the astronauts, riding in open convertibles, could not even see the sky above them.
5: Look at that car banked
3: with confetti and waste paper there. Knee deep in the back of the car. It's a good shot. We haven't seen that before.
1: One million New Yorkers lined Wall Street and Broadway for a look at the crew. That's more than turned out for the festivities celebrating the end of the Second World War.
5: That same day, they headed to Chicago for another big parade. State Street is
3: crowded with Chicagoans wishing well to the astronauts Apollo 11.
1: By Chicago, Buzz's face ached with all the smiling he was doing. He was overwhelmed. Everywhere he went, people asked him what it was like to walk on the moon, but he never had a good answer. They wanted something philosophical, something spiritual, something profoundly poetic that spoke to some deeper meaning of life. But he was just an engineer. The words he uttered on the moon's surface, magnificent desolation, slowly began to describe what was going on inside of him.
5: In the end of the day, out in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills, where President Nixon has a big black tie uh, dinner for them with all kinds of VIPs, and uh, that's just one day.
1: President Nixon presented each of the men with the Presidential Medal of Freedom.
6: And we are therefore awarding them tonight the Medal of Freedom the highest civilian honor that we can present to an American citizen.
1: Remember Steve Bales, the flight controller who recognized that the Eagle was still go for the moon despite all of those alarms? He was there too, and unbeknownst to him, was called up to receive the same award from the president on behalf of the entire white team in mission control.
7: I told my parents, I'm going to this dinner, I don't know, probably you won't see me, but I'll be back in the back somewhere. One of the guys on whatever network was carrying it said, there's this young guy, Steve Bale, is going to come up and be giving this award. They about fell off their chair. I mean, they couldn't believe it. This is
6: the young man when the computers seemed to be confused and we, when he could have said, stop, or when he could have said, wait, said, go.
1: Three days later, another parade was thrown for the crew back home in Houston where 300,000 people lined the streets to catch sight of Neil, Buzz, and Michael. That evening, 45,000 people packed the Astrodome to see them on stage. Frank Sinatra was there, too. He sang Fly Me to the Moon. They had
5: an appearance before a joint session of Congress where they gave a talk.
1: They brought with them two flags that they had carried on the lunar module to fly over each house of Congress. Neil wasn't comfortable as a public speaker, but by all accounts, he always rose to the challenge and dazzled his listeners. The formality and pomp of everything terrified Buzz. After parades in their hometowns, it was time for Operation Giant Leap. NASA Chief Historian Bill Berry.
8: President Nixon had plans for them. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew that we won the race to the moon. And so uh, he sends them off on a world
4: tour. One of the wives said at one point, and now it begins. And that was a reference to the fact that they were leaving their normal lives behind.
1: That was space historian and author of A Man on the Moon, Andrew Chaikin. With their wives beside them, the Apollo 11 astronauts visited 28 cities in 23 countries, meeting with 20 heads of state in just 37 days. Neil
3: Armstrong, the first man on the moon, led the way on this historic meeting. Her majesty, her husband and family, like the people of Britain, were proud to greet the space trio.
1: Buzz later confessed that traveling to and from the moon was less exhausting than jetting between Mexico, England, Iran, India, Japan, and Zaire.
4: I always refer to this as the mission they never trained for, right? You come back from the moon and suddenly you have to go be public celebrities, you have to make speeches at dinners, you have to be meeting heads of state. And, you know, uh, shaking so many hands, being in one parade after another, having to sign autographs. You know, this was not what they had originally signed up for as test pilots and fighter pilots. But it came with the job of being a conquering hero.
8: Mike Collins adapted pretty well to the world tour. And Neil seemed to do pretty well at it, too. But it really took its toll on Buzz because they really weren't prepared for that.
1: Hundreds of thousands of people came out to see them. In Berlin, it was more like a million. But cracks were starting to show in Buzz. His wife, Joan, kept asking her husband to tell her about his experiences on the moon. But Buzz kept brushing her off, saying he was so tired of talking about that subject. According to Lily Coppell, the author of the Astronaut Wives Club, he began acting more and more erratic.
7: In Rome, he was out partying all night, lived Dolce Vita style. Buzz felt like he had been being a very good boy. He'd done what NASA asked of him, so he sort of allowed himself to sort of start letting loose a bit. Buzz began to drink, he began to dance, he began to show his his dissatisfaction with what he saw as, I think, propaganda role that he had played.
1: Both Neil and Michael noticed something was the matter, but they didn't know what it was or how to help. At one point, Bill Carpenter, the Apollo 11 flight surgeon, pulled Buzz aside and asked him if everything was okay. Buzz admitted to being overwhelmed and accepted some pills.
7: He was having a space-age existential crisis. At some point, he turns to... Joan, and she's sort of wondering why he can't just enjoy this moment of glory. And he just said to her very flatly, Joan, I've been to the moon. Nothing in our lives is ever going to be the same again.
1: Things got so bad at one point that Joan told her husband that he needed to get control of himself or move out once they got back to America. Buzz righted himself, at least for a little while, as they finished the tour in D.C., had dinner with the president, and spent the night at the White House. A few days after they returned to the United States, the U.S. Postal Service came out with a new stamp. On it, Neil Armstrong was shown descending the ladder to the lunar surface. Beneath the image was the text, first man on the moon, man, singular.
7: He was incredibly upset over not having been the first man to step on the face of the moon. It still seems absolutely incredible to me and um, many of the wives I spoke to, and I think um, many people, hey, you were up there, you were with Neil, but I guess he would have preferred to be first, uh, sort of typical of these competitive astronauts.
1: We're in deeply speculative territory here. To this day, Buzz denies caring about being the first man to step foot on the moon. He's even said he's thankful given how Neil was mobbed all of his life for the honor. And yet, Those closest to him never bought it. Many friends and historians think that Buzz was very angry that he was not chosen as number one. But there's almost always this qualifier. It was not a matter of pride, but rather an inability to please his overbearing father.
4: Buzz came from a very difficult background in the sense that he had a very difficult and demanding father. And he certainly, whether or not he was always conscious of it, I think he felt the the impact of that. That it was almost as if nothing he ever did was good enough for his father. In fact, some of the other astronauts told me that they even remember his father kind of campaigning on Buzz's behalf, you know, that maybe Buzz should be the first guy out on the moon. And it must have been very hard on Buzz to have that kind of father.
1: Neil, Buzz, and Michael traveled half a million miles to the moon and back, and another 100,000 crisscrossing the earth. In all, Nearly 150 million people came out to see the crew of Apollo 11, and it was estimated that they shook half a million hands.
3: We've all come a long way with these three Apollo 11 astronauts. They've made us proud. They've shown us that massive national effort can be mounted and carried through to success, whether out into the reaches of space or, praise be, perhaps right here on the face of the earth.
9: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: Back on Apollo 11, the crew has just finished their breakfast. And as always, Michael is singing the praises of their rehydrated food. Breakfast was magnificent as usual. I had
3: sliced peaches, sausage patties, two cups of coffee, and I forget all what else. And yeah, that does sound uh, pretty good. As a matter of fact, I'm uh, way overdue for a meal myself here. I could use some of that. Once you get milk to give you five minutes up, have a hamburger. Uh, I suggested that a while ago. He was pointing out about uh, the weight problem here. Got to keep uh, the calories low, so uh, I better stand by without it.
1: As with yesterday, everyone is a lot more relaxed, cracking jokes and goofing around. Speaking of food, Mike has some advice for Apollo 12 due to launch the following November. We've been doing a little flight planning for Apollo 12
3: up here. Uh, Roger, go ahead. Trying to calculate how much uh, spaghetti and meatballs we can get on board for Al uh, I'm not sure the uh, spacecraft will take that much extra weight. Uh, have you made any estimates? It'll be close. That last comment came from uh, Mike Collins referring to Al Bean, who is the uh, lunar module pilot for Apollo 12.
1: Shortly after this chat, Apollo 11 passes the midway point on its homeward journey. They are now just over 100,000 nautical miles from Splashdown.
3: Apollo 11, this is Houston. Are you still up there? Over. I know we are, but not quite as so far as we were when while ago. For general information, 11, you are now nine or five thousand nine hundred and seventy miles out from the area. Starting to come downhill a little bit now. What's our velocity? The velocity is 5,991 feet per second. And you are indeed coming downhill. In
1: 1941, Citizen Kane opened in theaters. The film is considered the greatest American masterpiece ever made. Its director, co-writer, and star, Orson Welles, was just 25 years old. For the rest of his life, Welles would try to make something as good as his very first film. The attempt would nearly ruin him. The crew of Apollo 11 isn't yet 40 years old. They have done something no one else in human history has ever accomplished. They are heroes the world over. So what do they do next? NASA's Bill Barry.
8: It became apparent right after the Apollo 11 crew came back to Earth that they weren't going to fly in space again. The worst fate for pilots and astronauts is sorry, you don't get to go in space anymore. I don't think I can emphasize it enough that, you know, their identity was as military aviators uh, and and test pilots. And so suddenly they're not gonna be allowed to do that anymore. And they have to find some of their meaning
1: in their life. Neil, Buzz, and Michael were icons now, too important to risk on another flight. It was time to reinvent themselves. After the Giant Leap tour, Neil spent a few weeks with Bob Hope entertaining the troops in Vietnam.
6: had the privilege of meeting some outstanding men in our time, but the very quiet and soft-spoken young man you're about to meet now is a part of a team that provided this world with a thrill they will not soon forget.
1: Armstrong biographer James Hansen.
5: And Neil showed a lot of good humor and was very popular with the troops all across Vietnam, and then he was invited to go to the Soviet Union and gave talks and and met cosmonauts and met the wife of uh, Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space.
1: Neil may have fled the country just to get away from the mountains of mail that was coming in. While he'd planned on responding to everyone, it quickly became clear that that was impossible. For the first couple months, he received 10,000 letters a day. NASA threw a bunch of clerks and public affairs officers into the mix to help him, but they couldn't keep up with the tsunami. Even decades later, he continued to maintain an administrative assistant whose sole job was handling his overwhelming correspondence.
5: He was getting all kinds of invitations to do this and do that and give this talk and give this commencement speech and come to this grand opening. And, and Neil, it was sort of, it was overwhelming.
1: Neil needed some stability, and he found it in an offer from NASA.
5: The NASA administrator, Dr. Thomas Payne, asked Neil to take on a position back in the NASA's aeronautics programs uh, as associate administrator for aeronautics, which would have been a desk job in Washington. And Neil accepted it kind of grudgingly. He wasn't that interested in staying in Washington. He wasn't interested that much in a desk job, but aeronautics was his passion. So he accepted the job.
1: Not surprisingly, Neil didn't enjoy flying a desk and he remained in the job for only a couple of years.
5: I think he would have been happy if the, in the job if they had just let him do it. Uh, but being in Washington, D.C., it was constantly getting calls to come over to have a photo shoot with an ambassador or a visiting dignitary or congressman or something like that. And after a while, Neil just got tired of, of that. They wouldn't leave him alone, and, and he chose, well, I'm gonna just have to get out of, I need to find a, a normal life.
4: Neil tried to get back to some sense of normalcy by going back to Ohio, having a farm that he lived on, even as he was uh, teaching engineering at the university in Cincinnati, and maintaining a fairly low profile throughout his post-Apollo years. He was not the recluse that people made him out to be. He just didn't seek publicity, and he was steadfast about meeting the world on his own terms.
1: As Andrew Chaikin just alluded to, for Neil, it was never about celebrity or fame. It was only ever about the flying. He became a favorite professor at Cincinnati's School of Engineering from 1971 to 1979. But in the early 80s, he decided to try something new.
5: I don't think he was really after big money, but I think he was intrigued by the possibilities of what he might be able to do for certain corporations, especially those that had a had a technical engineering uh, side to it. So starting, you know, around 1980, uh, really, until his retirement, Neil's involved with a number of different companies, including Learjet and Chrysler.
1: Michael Collins retired from NASA just a year after the Apollo 11 mission. Having basically worked as a U.S. diplomat during the Giant Leap Tour, Michael took a job he would later describe as plush purgatory.
8: He actually volunteers to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. And he does that for a year or so. And like his colleagues, after about a year or so in his his alternate career, he realizes that uh, there's another opportunity I like better.
4: He became the first director of the National Air and Space Museum, where he uh, supervised the design the development of the exhibits, the construction of the building, uh, made sure that it came in on time and under budget when it opened right around the time of the nation's bicentennial uh, in 1976 on July 4th. After that, he became the undersecretary of the Smithsonian.
3: This beautiful new museum and its exciting exhibits of the mastery of air and space is a perfect birthday present from the American people to themselves.
8: Neil and and Mike, I think, make a a pretty good adjustment. Buzz had a harder time with it.
7: Buzz came back from the moon a changed man, Jones said.
1: After the world tour, Buzz was emotionally exhausted and physically drained. His marriage was coming apart, and he was haunted by an all-consuming aimlessness. What does a man do for an encore after walking on the moon, he later wrote in one of his autobiographies. At home, he was moody and dismissive. He stopped talking to his kids and would spend hours in front of the TV. Nearly every night was fitful and sleepless. He was a hero without a sense of purpose. About the only thing consistent in his life was his drinking. In April of 1970, less than a year after the splashdown of Apollo 11, Buzz met a woman named Mary Ann at an Air Force event in New York. He was immediately attracted to her and she to him. She represented everything he felt his marriage currently lacked. Life color and vitality. It wasn't long before he and Marianne began a secret affair. He began taking regular flights to New York to see her, under the pretense of needing to maintain his flight hours. Marianne was about the only bright spot in his life. He still needed a job. And the Air Force says, well,
8: we'll put you in charge of a test pilot school. Which was
10: not really the assignment he wanted, but I not think was a very good fit there.
1: Buzz's son, Andy.
10: that I, I know he very much wanted, he wanted to run the Air Force Academy. I think that was his real passion. And I think he was frustrated that he didn't do that.
1: Buzz had zero test flight or administrative experience. But at least it was a job. At least he had purpose again. But it wasn't long before the hopelessness returned, and Buzz checked himself into a San Antonio medical clinic. The official reason for Buzz's stay was to treat some back and neck pain. But really, he was there to come to grips with his deteriorating mental health. There was great stigma attached to mental illness in the early 1970s, and Buzz was convinced, not incorrectly, that if word got out, his career would be over and his status as an American hero severely tarnished. Buzz was there for about four weeks, during which time he regularly sat down with a psychiatrist. He began opening up about his depression, and the doctor learned that Buzz's grandfather had ended his life with his own revolver.
4: On his mother's side, a history of depression. In fact, his mother had... Committed
1: suicide. Buzz's mother, whose maiden name was poignantly Moon, said she didn't think she could handle her son's looming fame and committed suicide less than a year before Buzz walked on the moon. It was something Buzz blamed himself for.
4: My God, what a burden, what a psychic burden to carry.
1: While the sessions were enlightening, neither Buzz nor his doctor was aware of one of the most toxic elements of Buzz's decline, an example of which was stashed beneath his clothes in his suitcase a bottle of scotch. When Buzz checked himself out of treatment, he was feeling better, though his doctor warned him that he still had a long way to go. One of the first things Buzz did was fly to New York to see Mary Ann, but he quickly learned that she had decided to end their relationship and marry someone else. His self-esteem in tatters, a dejected Buzz stepped down from the Edwards job just nine months after he took it, and with it, he left the military and NASA behind. I wanted to resume my duties, but there were no duties to resume, Buzz later wrote. There was no goal, no sense of calling, no project worth pouring myself into. He felt adrift, cut off from anything that once defined him. Shortly before he retired, he wrote an article in the Los Angeles Times recounting his post-Apollo 11 difficulties. Rather than being shunned, he received wide acclaim for being bold enough to come forward publicly and admit his struggles especially given his straight-laced military background. He was asked to serve on the board of the National Association for Mental Health and soon wrote a book describing his battles in greater detail. He didn't hold much back, admitting to nearly all of his personal struggles and indiscretions.
10: You know, the issues with depression and alcoholism were really, really difficult. I'm not sure if my dad being so public about it made it easier or harder but we certainly didn't have to hide the fact because he was so public about it. The book was intended by him to be a cathartic experience and that after the book, he was gonna get sober and you know kind of rekindle the relationship with my mom, and, and none of that happened. In
1: 1974, shortly after the death of Buzz's overbearing father and 20 years of marriage, Buzz and Joan divorced. He was hardly alone. Of the 30 astronauts who served at NASA from 1961 to 1969, 23 of their marriages ended in divorce. Buzz's drinking continued to spiral out of control. His role with the National Association for Mental Health came with many speaking engagements, which Buzz was often too drunk to perform. His new girlfriend pleaded with him to check into an alcohol rehabilitation center, which he did, and after a month of treatment, they were married. That relationship fell apart just a year or so later. Buzz's Air Force pension wasn't cutting it, and one of his AA contacts helped him land a new job, selling Cadillacs in Beverly Hills. But after six months on the job, and not a single car sold, Buzz quit. It wasn't long after that that he kicked in his new girlfriend's door in a drunken rage and was arrested for disorderly conduct. Buzz Aldrin had hit rock bottom.
9: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: Back on Apollo 11, the crew is preparing for their final TV transmission. They'd never wanted cameras to be a part of this mission, but NASA hadn't given them a choice. Tonight, however, they're thankful to have a chance to say a few words to the watching world. What follows is a beautiful and heartfelt acknowledgement of the history they made and the team back on Earth that made it possible. Let's settle in and listen.
3: You all set for TV? Roger, we're all set whenever you're ready to send. Good evening. This is the commander of Apollo 11. A hundred years ago, Jules Verne wrote a book about a voyage to the moon. His spaceship, Columbia, took off from Florida and landed in the Pacific Ocean after completing a trip to the moon. It's appropriate to us to share with you some of the reflections of the crew as the modern-day Columbia completes its rendezvous with the planet Earth in the same Pacific Ocean tomorrow. First, Mike Collins. Roger, this
6: trip of ours to the moon may have looked to you simple or easy. I'd like to assure you that that has not been the case. The Saturn V rocket, which put us into orbit, is an incredibly complicated piece of machinery, every piece of which works flawlessly. The SPS engine, our large rocket engine, on the aft end of our service module, must have performed flawlessly or we would have been stranded in lunar orbit. The parachutes up above my head must work perfectly tomorrow or we will plummet into the ocean. All this is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of the American workmen who put these pieces of machinery together at the factory. This operation is somewhat like the periscope of a submarine. All you see is the three of us, but beneath the surface are thousands and thousands of others. And to all those,
1: I would like to say thank you very much. Michael later admits that he has a huge lump in his throat and ends very emotionally. Buzz is up next. Good evening. As we've been discussing the events that have
3: taken place in the past, two or three days here on board our spacecraft, we've come to the conclusion that this has been far more than three men on a voyage to the moon, more still than the efforts of a government and industry team, more even than the efforts of one nation. We feel that this stands as a symbol of the insatiable curiosity of all mankind to explore the unknown. We've been particularly pleased with the emblem of our flight, depicting the U.S. eagle, bringing the universal symbol of peace from the planet Earth to the moon, that symbol being the olive branch. Personally, in reflecting the events of the past several days, a verse from the Psalms comes to mind to me. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man, that thou art mindful of him?
1: Last but not least is Neil. The responsibility for this flight lies
3: first with history, and with the giants of science who have preceded this effort, next to the American people who have, through their will, indicated their desire, next to four administrations and their congresses for implementing that will, and then to the agency and industry team that built our spacecraft the Saturn, the Columbia, the Eagle, and the little EMU, the spacesuit and backpack that was our small spacecraft out on the lunar surface. We'd like to give a special thanks to all those Americans who built those spacecraft, who did the construction, design, the test, and put their heart and all their abilities into those crafts. To those people, tonight we give a special thank you. And to all the other people that are listening, and watching tonight. God
1: bless you. Good night from Apollo 11. I can think a few better ways to begin winding this podcast down than to let these men gush about the very people whose voices we've been hearing over the past eight episodes. Those who designed, built, and tested the spacecraft in which they've been traveling. The flight controllers in mission control watching over them every step of their journey. The political machine that gave birth to such an audacious feat. And the American public who cheered them on and in the end, footed the bill. And given the fact that this extraordinary accomplishment was carried out as part of a titanic struggle between two global titans, there is something meaningful in the crew's insistence that the winner of the space race was not a government or a single nation, but rather the insatiable curiosity of all mankind to explore the unknown. Apollo 11 was a small step for the United States, but a giant leap for humankind. In 1991, while on a ski trip, Neil Armstrong suffered a heart attack. It was the same day he'd begun the process of separating from Janet, his wife of 38 years. Lily Coppell and James Hansen explain.
7: Neil had always been a very uh, guarded, playing his cards, close to his chest kind of guy. I think Jan felt sort of an emotional coldness from Neil.
5: I think Janet had hoped all along that that Neil might change in in, in important ways and their relationship uh, that Neil could be more present for her and I think you know she was hoping that when he left the astronaut corps and then and then left NASA and they went back to Ohio and he got this teaching position and they got this farm uh, that that would all be enough for things to change in, in ways that would make the relationship healthier and the whole situation of the family, uh, better. And so I think she just kept hoping that that would happen. Um, and it didn't, it just didn't change. And she came to the realization, obviously over (laughs) many, many years, very slowly that, you know, he's just not, he's never going to change. This is never going to be any different. Uh, what she said to me was, I got tired of being Mrs. Neil Armstrong.
1: Neil recovered from his heart attack.
5: Around 1993, 94, when Neil was a member of a golf club and um, a friend of his who had a friend that had just lost her husband a few years back in a flying accident, Carol Knight was her name. Neil was introduced to her at the golf club and they hit it off. Neil and Carol Married and stayed married until Neil's death in 2012. And some people think that Carol really turned out to be the love of his, of his life, a better match.
1: Neil continued to fly right up until the day he died.
5: He was having some symptoms uh, that uh, he called in to his doctor, uh, and the doctor wanted him to come in immediately. Uh, and they gave him a stress test and realized he had some blockages that needed to be fixed. And so they immediately gave him a quadruple bypass surgery.
1: Just a few days later, Neil was up and walking, and it looked like he'd be heading home soon. But he developed complications that his small local hospital was not equipped to handle.
5: A man who could have died a zillion different ways as a pilot, you know, in combat in Korea, in you know, flying airplanes at Edwards— uh, as an astronaut, for him to die in the way that he did, you know, I feel is extraordinarily tragic. And, and it sort of makes a, a very unfortunate ending to what had been a really remarkable life.
1: Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, becoming a hero to generations, has died. Back on Earth, the former Navy fighter pilot never allowed himself to be caught up in the celebrity and glamour of the space program, calling himself... A white socks, pocket protector, nerdy engineer. Neil Armstrong was 82. His family was offered a state funeral, something usually reserved only for presidents and high-ranking members of Congress. But they declined. He was buried at sea with full Naval honors. Pat Collins died in 2014 after suffering a stroke, she and Michael were happily married until the very end.
7: Pat and Michael Collins were one of just a handful of space couples that stayed together. Pat was a very liberated woman, and Michael Collins, perhaps this is one of the traits of any good marriage, let her be herself.
1: According to Andrew Chaikin, Michael was the most successful at maintaining a sense of normalcy after Apollo 11's return.
4: Mike was of the three of them, the most user-friendly. Mike was the most approachable, relatable. He talked easily. He smiled. He made jokes. You saw that this was a three-dimensional human being, much more so than the public side of Neil or Buzz. Um, I would say it's it's fair to say that in public, you had the sense that both Neil and Buzz were wound pretty tight. Um, not so with Mike.
1: When we left off with Buzz, he'd hit rock bottom. As a result, he quit drinking, and he never looked back. He married again to a woman named Lois. Every Superman needs his Lois, he joked. She was the love of his life, he told everyone, and indeed, they seemed very happy. More than anyone else, he wrote in his autobiography, she rebuilt him from the inside out. And she had a talent for making money transforming herself into his manager and biggest promoter. She booked Buzz on countless television shows, everything from The Simpsons and The Big Bang Theory to 30 Rock and Dancing with the Stars. She organized speeches, greased the skids on nearly a dozen books, and got him endorsement deals with Apple, Nike, and Louis Vuitton. Together, they made millions. And finally, Buzz was no longer destitute or buried in darkness. And once again, he found his passion. For space.
4: He was a pioneer at heart and still is. It's not an accident that he spent most of his energies since leaving NASA on forwarding the cause of space exploration.
1: He began advocating for NASA to take the next logical step placing American bootprints in the scarlet soil of the red planet. He wants to see humanity become a two planet species with a colony on Mars by 2040. Tragically, this twilight renaissance did not last, and Buzz and Lois divorced in 2012 after 23 years of marriage. Most recently, Buzz was in the news as part of a legal dispute in which he filed a lawsuit against two of his children and his former business partner, accusing them of trying to exploit him and steal his money. They contended that several of his friends were taking advantage of his dementia and Alzheimer's, alienating him from his family and draining his life savings. He later dropped the lawsuit but has been largely out of the public eye ever since. Many have asked, why was Buzz the only one whose life was torn apart once he returned to Earth? And there are no easier pat answers. Neil was number one. He didn't have anything to prove. While he was far from the hermit many made him out to be after his return, he wisely rationed himself. He spoke seldom about his public life and almost never about his private life. Michael said in his autobiography... That the moon changed him, gave him a cosmic perspective. He no longer got upset over the little things in life. No matter the accolades he received or the challenges he faced, the earth continued to rotate just the same. The moon continued in its path unchanged. Buzz was Apollo's middle child, always trying to prove himself to his father, to all of us, and hardest of all, to himself. Years after their return, he admitted that the crew of Apollo 11 didn't really stay all that connected. They took their very different personalities and went their separate ways, only glancing into each other at special events every half decade or so. And perhaps, in the end, we shouldn't ask why Buzz cracked. But rather, how could he not have, given all the pressure he was under before, during, and even after the mission? We idolized these men. We made them international icons. We dubbed them heroes. And indeed they are, but they're also just human.
3: Apollo 11, this is Houston, your friendly green team going off for the night and going off for the last time. We wish to bid you a good night and Godspeed.
1: Back on Apollo 11, Bruce McCandless is saying his goodbyes. The green team's rotation won't come up again during the remainder of the mission.
3: Thank you. We appreciate all that fine work done by the by the green team,
1: and uh, we'll be thanking you in person when we get back. Really enjoyed working with all of you. Thank you very much. All Thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, Been a pleasure working with you. Have a nice trip down. Charlie Duke is the next one in the Capcom seat, and he has some bad news. The weather reports had been predicting beautiful skies over their landing zone tomorrow, but things have changed. A typhoon is brewing in the South Pacific, where they are expected to splash down.
3: The uh, weather is clobbering in at our targeted uh, landing point uh, due to uh, a scattered thunderstorm. We're going to uh, move the the new coordinates are 13 uh, degrees, 19 minutes north, 169, 10 minutes west. Uh, The weather in that area is super. Roger. 11 Houston, uh, Mike, you get your chance to landing tomorrow. No go around. Right, you're going to let me land closer to Hawaii, too, aren't you? That's right, sir.
1: As with their moon landing, they're going to have to land downrange of their intended target. 215 nautical miles, to be exact. This gives Michael pause. It's a very different kind of entry, and not one Michael has trained for. Assuming the computer keeps working and guides them in, there will be no issues. But if something happens and Michael has to take control, they're in trouble. This is
6: Apollo Control. All good nights having been said, the crew of Apollo 11 is now uh, preparing to get their 10 hours rest and their last
1: night in space. As they prepare for sleep, Michael finds himself thinking about the men in the spacecraft with him. The astronauts began as competitors, and Michael assumed that once they became a crew, that would fall away and they drop their guards. But they haven't. Michael realizes that they never share their thoughts or feelings. They only ever talk about the mission. Michael wants to get to know Neil better, but Neil seems to hold him, and everyone, at arm's length. And oddly enough, Michael is the one keeping Buzz at arm's length. Buzz is the more approachable, but Michael feels as if Buzz is always trying to probe him for weaknesses. Michael realizes that if they get home in one piece, their lives are going to change and there will doubtless be challenges none of them can anticipate or are prepared for. Michael wishes they were closer and could draw on each other for strength. He would later write in his autobiography, I don't have any idea what Neil and Buzz intend to do after the flight, or me for that matter. But whatever it is, we should support each other. And I'm not sure we've yet built the basis for that support. Day 8 is over. Day 9, July 23rd. Begins with our next and final episode. Apollo 11 is nearly home, but first it has to fall through a veil of fire. And we'll take a look at what the future holds for our spacefaring culture as NASA and private industry prepare to return to the moon and from there make history again by setting their sights on Mars. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein in association with High Five Content and executive producer Andrew Jacobs Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers Brianne Shosaw and Natalie Robamed Our incredible editor is Bill Lance Original music by Henry Benoit Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa Special thanks to James Hansen the author of First Man Lily Coppell the author of The Astronaut Wives Club, Andrew Chaikin, the author of A Man on the Moon, NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry, and Mission Control's Steve Bales. Special thanks to everyone at NASA who made this podcast possible, especially the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who's responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of mission audio you're hearing selections from in this podcast special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out each week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phipps. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode.